It was a very cruel scene, executed in an unusual manner. Hey, cruel coven. Hello, spunky butts. I came up with that one. She did. My name is Tori. I'm Katie. Welcome to Cruel and Unusual. The podcast. Oh, God. And just in case you guys don't know, we talk about all things true crime. We talk about murder, disappearances. Weird stuff. Conspiracies. Aliens. Lots of stuff, guys. If you have never had the intense pleasure of listening to this podcast, please just keep on going. You will find out at the very end that there was no pleasure involved. (laughs) If we've never had the intense pleasure of gracing your ear holes. Honestly. That sounds so dirty. Doesn't it? Hmm. In you know, a lot of ways. Something I learned. You know how a lot of people have foot fetishes? Yes. It's because, okay, I don't know the parts of the brain that they were talking about, but they were saying that like the uh, part of your brain <laughs> where you feel things, uh-huh. um, your feet and your genitals, the two like little... um neurons or wires are right next to each other really so it's very easy for them to get crossed wow Mm -hmm. okay before we dive into articles and all of that stuff in the main episode should i tell them a little like recap of the very odd nightmare i had last night yeah so yes weird you have to tell them you gotta tell them you gotta do it do it do it (laughs) i and typically only have very vivid dreams if i'm pregnant spoiler alert i'm not Mm -mm. But last night, I had a dream (laughs) that I would classify as a fucking nightmare. Oh, yeah. So my ex-husband, I will sometimes have dreams or nightmares about him. They're typically always like the same kind of thing. It can probably be triggering to people. So I'm not going to talk about that. And there's no point. But this dream was wildly (laughs) different. Yeah. So he and I were both working at a Wendy's. I have never seen this Wendy's before. I don't know where it was. Was it like an old-fashioned Wendy's with the salad bar? No. Damn. Well, I mean, it could have been because I <laughs> only really ever saw like the the back room. Oh, yeah. Like, like oh, by the window. you were an employee. Yes. Okay. Yes, we were both employees at Wendy's. And it was very awkward. And then finally, like in the middle of the dream, all of the crew were just like hanging out in this one room. And all of a sudden, I'm like... I'm just going to ask him. I'm, I go, what happened to you? <laughs> and, and just to provide a little bit of context for that, I noticed that he had like these three big, thick gash marks. I can see them right now. Like these three thick gash marks on his neck. And then on the side of his face was this like long, like claw looking mark. Mm. And I was like, what the hell is he doing? Like, I don't really give a fuck, but I'm, I'm nosy. Like, Curiosity I would like to know. killed yeah, the cat. Truly. And it could have killed me. <laughs> and so he turned to me very slowly and he bends down at the waist like he's sitting on the floor. He bends at the waist and he starts eating himself. Jesus. <laughs> he's taking bites out of his flesh. Did he have like, um? did he like sprout some crazy looking teeth to do this or just? I couldn't see his teeth because he was mm-hmm. like, his face was like down up against his legs. <laughs> okay. And he just started taking chunks out of himself. And then to top it all off, the woman next to me, she's like, hold on, wait. I see that, <laughs> I see that you have chunks missing out of your feet. 
And he's like, yeah. And she's like, well, I've never done that before. But then she pulls her pants down so we can all see her flesh is like half gone on her legs. And she's like, she's like, like, good idea. I got my feet left at least. Yeah. But then she's like, okay, I'm going to try that. So she takes her her mouth and she pulls her flesh, her skin up like this. I'm no. showing Katie. It's very, it goes so high and it's so elastic. Oh. And it's I like don't sheer, get it. <laughs> like see through skin. Right, right. And I'm just sitting there fucking horrified. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then it just got even crazier. And, and then you found out what meat they use in the chili. Yes. Right? At Wendy's. And I was like, holy fuck. That's <laughs> why he's getting paid more than me. <laughs> Because he eats his own flesh. Yes. So. (laughs) Put that on your resume. Yeah, honestly. So that was just a very odd dream. And the only thing I can think of, because as I have been pondering about it throughout the day, I've been kind of thinking like that their feet turned into like fish feet. And fish don't have feet. No. But. (laughs) Like a fin? (laughs) Yeah, almost. And like they turned like colors like green and blue. And I think it might have been because a couple of days ago I watched this movie called Luca or something with Nora. I always watched that the other night with my kids. And it's so cute. Yeah. But they like turn from They're, fish yeah. into human and they like you watch them turn. Yeah. They go from like sea monster yeah. fish and I'm, type of thing to human. I'm wondering if my brain was like trying to do that. Maybe. But it was like not working. So yeah. that's what it ended up with. Isn't aren't dreams so funny? So weird. I would love to do an entire like either Patreon episode or main episode all about dreams mm-hmm. and like different experiences that people have had. I think that would be so fun. Yeah. But yeah, so that's my little quick, quick, <laughs> quick story time for <laughs> for this episode on this beautiful Thor day. It's Thor day, the best day. Should we jump into articles? We should jump into articles. Okay. Mine is from people.com. It's written by Kyler Elvord. The headline is, My one night stand with a serial killer. Woman recounts unwitting encounter 40 years ago in essay. Okay. I'm not going to read the entire essay. This is just an article about the essay. (laughs) Darn it. In a new essay published on Slate, a woman recounts a one-night stand she had as an 18-year-old with a peculiar older man, one she now believes to be Gary Ridgway, the infamous Green River Killer. And she survived? Mm-hmm. Holy wow. In the essay, Jill McCabe Johnson wrote that she met a slender, blue-eyed man at White Shutters, a one-time country-western dance hall near the Seattle-Tacoma Airport in Washington State. The man introduced himself as Gary, who claimed to be 29, but appeared a few wrinkles older. (laughs) I had no reason to suspect anything odd about Gary back then. I ran into him a few times over several weeks, and he seemed nice enough, writes McCabe Johnson. His hands didn't stray during slow dances, and he never tried to sneak a kiss. After one of McCabe Johnson's nights out in late 1980 or early 1981, she recalls hitching a ride home from Gary in his beat-up pickup truck. The two went to her apartment where Gary showed her his business card and a photo of his young son. What? And shared details of his job as a painter and his pending divorce. Soon after, they had sex, and when her roommates came home, he seemed startled and left. Oh, okay. McCabe Johnson turned down Gary's request for a follow-up date, and aside from spotting him parked outside her apartment a few times in subsequent months, that's fucking he weird. Faded to memory. Yeah, 
20 years after McCabe Johnson's encounter with the strange but seemingly well-mannered man from the bar, news broke that the notorious Green River Killer had been arrested in Renton, Washington. His name was Gary Ridgway, a father of one who finalized a divorce in 1981 and had worked in a paint shop. The Gary in the news looked kind of familiar, but squintier and heavier than the man I remembered, and his hair seemed a little darker, too, McCabe Johnson writes. It was a coincidence, I told myself. Shirley could not have been the same man. Gary Ridgway confessed to killing at least 71 teen girls and women in Washington and Oregon during the 80s and 90s. He was known to strangle his victims during intercourse. And then it just ends with this quote from her. Maybe someday I'll turn the key and find an envelope marked with a state penitentiary return address, she writes. Ooh. In the meantime, I'll tell you what I told my husband. It seems impossible that it wasn't Gary Ridgway who slept with me that winter in early 1981. And it seems equally impossible that it was. Mm. What if it was? I think it was. I think it was, too. That's too many coincidences. Too many. One coincidence, fine. Two coincidences is a little weird. Three or more, it's Gary Ridgway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Truly, honestly, sincerely, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Fucked up. I agree. Fucked up. And that he was seemingly stalking her i feel like if i were her i would have to like write to him mm-hmm. and be like know. did you sleep with me yeah was and, that you and leave yeah <laughs> and not kill me but i i would need to know same i could not go on i don't no. think without knowing you know how i get when no. i go down these holes mm-hmm. what's your article okay so my article is actually one actually i'm just gonna read it and then we will provide the context after okay Okay, this is from the New York Post. It was written February 27th of 2021 by Raquel Lanieri. The headline is, quote, How I discovered my babysitter, Tony Costa, was a serial killer. Liza Rodman hadn't thought about Tony Costa in three decades when, in 2005, she had a nightmare about him. Tony had been her favorite babysitter when she was a kid in Cape Cod in the 1960s. He was handsome, charming, fun, but in her dream, he pushed her up against the wall in a long hallway and held a gun to her head. I had had many of these incredibly violent dreams, but they always had an anonymous man with a weapon of some kind, Rodman told the Post. So when I had that dream of Tony with his face, I knew it was something significant. Still, she wasn't prepared for her mother's response when Rodman asked whatever happened to their beloved babysitter. It was one of those moments when everything slows down, like you've done bad drugs. Rodman, now 61, recalls. Her mother was drinking gin, and after pausing a moment, she said, calmly, Well, I remember he turned out to be a serial killer. Oh. Nonchalant. Oh, is that all? The cavalier way she described it was like it was no big deal. It just really pierced me, stopped me in my tracks, Rodman said. Rodman had vague memories of a string of murders that occurred in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where her family spent summers in the late 1960s. Scary stuff about missing girls and shallow graves and dismembered bodies. But she had no idea that Tony, the handyman at the motel where her mom worked when she wasn't teaching home economics, was involved. Okay, that makes sense. I was like, why is he a babysitter, but yeah. if he's there all the yeah. time? In fact, she couldn't believe it. Tony was one of the very few adults in her life who treated her with kindness. Plus, he spent so much time with Rodman and her little sister, Louisa, buying them ice cream, letting them ride around in his utility truck. Sounds like a killer. <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> Liza. <mean. laughs> Hindsight's <Honey>. 2020. 
Um, even taking them to see his secret garden in the woods, no. Liza. No. No. <laughs> no, Liza. All three of those things were signs. And the fertilizer was human bodies. Fuck. <laughs> okay, moving on with the quote. With the article. How could he have been a serial killer responsible for the brutal deaths of at least four young women? I started researching him and going back through my own memories to see where my life and his life lined up, Rodman said. I just needed to know the whole story. Sixteen years later, she's told the story with her new book, The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer, from Atria, out Tuesday at when this article was written, which she wrote with investigative journalist Jennifer Jordan. Wow, that's cool. Rodman was seven years old in 1966 when she first met Tony Costa. That was the first year her mom, Betty, a divorced home ec teacher struggling to raise two girls on her own, got a summer job in Provincetown. Rodman's dad had left when she was four. So Betty, Liza, and Louisa set out from their house in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, to a single room at the Royal Coachman, the seaside motel where their mom worked as director of housekeeping. One day, 21-year-old Tony drove up to the motel in his beat-up Oldsmobile. He was tall and suntanned with thick, dark hair and straight white teeth, Rodman writes. He had come to say hi to his mother, Cecilia, one of the Royal Coachman's housekeepers, and to inquire if he could get a job there, too. Soon, Tony wasn't just patching up screens and fixing leaky faucets in the motel, but also watching Rodman and her little sister, Louisa. I'm going to skip quite a bit of this because it's going to, I think it's going to go kind of deep into all of the crimes that Tony committed. But at the end of this article, it says, in May of 1970, Tony was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He died four years later. And while his death was ruled a suicide, some believe that other inmates might have killed him. When 10-year-old Liza arrived in Provincetown for the summer of 69, she wondered where her favorite babysitter had gone, but she didn't think too much about it. She was used to men disappearing from her life. Mm. Her mother seemed careful to shield her from any news, and eventually, Liza had other things to worry about. Even after her mother revealed, decades later, that Tony had been a serial killer, she was reluctant to talk about the case. So what? Betty told her daughter. He didn't kill you, did he? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, no, but... Several people close to the case told her she was lucky she was so young when she met Tony, and that he was probably grooming her to be one of his kid chicks. Mm. It's just stunning to think about, Rodman said. And yet, even today, Rodman, who works as a tax accountant, and now author, has trouble reconciling the real-life monster with her summer babysitter. So, the context behind this is that one day Katie sent me this article. Yeah, because you had spoken about him in the Krista Worthington part one. Yeah. And I was writing up, like, notes or something, and I had to figure out how to spell his name. And I came across that article. I'm like, holy fucking shit. Because if you don't know what he did, either look it up or listen to Krista Worthington part one. Yeah. He was the cemetery guy. Yeah. So Katie sent it to me and I was like, holy fuck, I have that book. Yeah. (laughs) And I realized that I've spoken to Liza Mm -hmm. multiple times and she sent me her book. Yeah. And I didn't even like, (laughs) I did not even put two and two together. (laughs) I didn't even put two and two together. Oh, so weird. No, and I hadn't, I obviously, I have not been able to read the book yet, but I have it sitting on my fucking nightstand. Yeah. And Liza is such a sweet lady. So sweet. You guys, if you want a read that is a true story and chilling, I haven't read it yet, but that's what all the reviews say. 
I think it's available on Amazon. I think it's actually available through most retailers, but I could be wrong. It's by Liza Rodeman. L-I-Z-A-R-O-D-M-A-N and Jennifer Jordan, who is the investigative journalist on the case. It's called The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer. Wow. I'm going to have to get that. It looks like it's going to be really good. And obviously, it's a true story. Mm -hmm. It's Liza's, like, real account of everything that happened. Yeah. And she's sweet. And I, I hope that you guys will support her. Wow. That's so crazy. Two brushes with these horrific serial killers in our articles today. Right. Wow. The fuck? Okay, so we have our QOTDW from Miss Chastity. I love Chastity. And it's a voice one because she's playing along with all our games. Awesome. <laughs> Hello, my beautiful, cruel queens. So I have a QOTDW for you today, and that definitely is difficult to say. If you ladies could only read books from three authors for the rest of your lives, what three would you pick? Now that's part one. Part two would be if you could only listen to three musicians for the rest of your life, what three would they be? Alrighty, that's all I have for you today. Not too creative, but you know, that's what I have. Thank you guys. I love you. Bye. Um, okay. Who are your authors? My authors are Sherry Lapina, M.M. Schwinard, and Karen Slaughter. Okay. Mine, okay, Karen Slaughter's one of mine. Mm-hmm. Gillian Flynn, uh-huh. number two, because no book has ever made me feel how her books make me feel. Uh-huh. It's just something. Sure. She's got like the magic spice. The magic spice. And then I think I would pick Colleen Hoover for number three. Really? Because if I wanted something like a little bit lighter. Yeah. I mean, she'll still rip your heart out, but it's of different course. than a than a thriller yeah. or like a book about murder. Yeah. Um, so if I needed a little break mm-hmm. or like a little bit of romance, sometimes I, I sometimes yeah. I want romance. Not very often, but I have to throw it in there. Sure. I don't really listen to music. <laughs> Isn't that pathetic? No, you really don't. I don't you ever. Don't. It's always podcasts. My musicians would be the Menzingers, mm-hmm. all-time favorite band. Also, the Gaslight Anthem. And third would be... Distillers. The Distillers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they would have to be one of mine. The yeah. Distillers would have to be one of mine. The Distillers can just pump me up mm-hmm. for anything. Like, I could be going to traffic court, and yeah. I would listen to it. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. And fuck then yeah, I'm going to get old. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, but, who, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we used to love us some Green Day. But I cannot take them on repeat. So, no, I don't know. No. You know, well, I've developed this sensory thing mm-hmm. over the past several years and i've pretty much stopped listening to music because yeah. the layered sounds yeah grind my gears i don't yeah. i don't know i love old school green day though mm-hmm. so i do much. too i love it i love it but if i had to listen to that for the rest of my life i don't think i could do it you wouldn't have a very long life no is what you're saying no i would find a cliff yes is what i would do and swan dies mm-hmm. okay well <laughs> hopefully that answers your question my yeah. little love Also, just really quick, if you guys remember me talking about Chastity's YouTube channel, that is Bookish Babes on YouTube. And they post, her and her friend Hannah post a bunch of book-related content. And I know a lot of our listeners like books. There is another account on there that's just Bookish Babe. Mm -hmm. But this one is Babes because there's two babes, not one. There's two babes on that one. Bookish Babes. (laughs) Got it? Got it. (laughs) Okay, anyway, just, just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, but now... 
now what you've all been waiting for today's case katie i don't know who you're doing what you're doing what it's about anything hit me it's another devastatingly heartbreaking case aren't they all aren't they all but it's another very important case and one that i didn't know anything about i've seen the victim's pictures before but i had no idea what his story was okay and i'm gonna tell you all here we go by 1991 your birth year. I knew you were just going to light up when I said My, 91. <laughs> I really did light up, didn't I? You did. Her face, she goes, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> of all of the things Hello. that happened in 1991, it's me. I'm the most yes. important. <laughs> no, but by 1991 in the U.S., the battle against the AIDS epidemic was a battle that had already been going on for a decade. And HIV infection was the second leading cause of death among men aged 25 to 44. I had no idea. Uh, I did not know that statistic. Neither did I. I knew it was it ravaged the nation, but I didn't know that was the second leading cause of death for, yeah. for young men. Right. So in 1991, 29,850 U.S. residents died from HIV infection, including Freddie Mercury in November of that year. And also in November of 91, Pro basketball player Irvin Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV and that he was retiring from basketball to help educate young people about the disease. Oh, wow. I did not know that he did that. Mm -hmm. Magic Johnson making that announcement helped the public start to see that the disease wasn't only a quote-unquote gay disease because that's what the stereotype was. AIDS was highly stigmatized. People with AIDS would be judged for being quote-unquote immoral and some people felt that if you were diagnosed with AIDS, you deserved it because clearly you were making bad choices and it was God's punishment. People are the worst, mm -hmm. man. So, like, you get the gist. And while Magic Johnson announcing that he had HIV, it was a singular step in destigmatizing the disease. In 1991, a lot of people still held those beliefs. Yeah. It was an extremely homophobic era, and the reason I'm talking about AIDS in the early 90s is because it strongly played into the brutal, senseless murder and legacy of a gay man named Paul Broussard. I know that last name, but I feel like I don't know his story. Mm -hmm. That's how I was feeling, too. I'm okay. like, I've seen his picture, I've, I've heard the name. Yeah. But I didn't know what happened. Got it. Okay, cool. So, I'm excited to hear. We're going to Texas, or as I like to call it, Gilead. Okay. Um, so this takes place in Houston, specifically, in 1991. And just to give you an inkling of the atmosphere there, close to this particular point in history, in 1985, former Houston Mayor Louis Welch was running for mayor again. And... When he was asked, so he was on TV on this program, and he was asked what he thought the best way to curb the spread of HIV was, he said the best way would be to, quote, shoot all the queers, end quote. Disgusting. On live television. Re and who was this? He was a former mayor of Houston, and he was running again for mayor. Wow. Um, like, it's one thing to be a homophobe, but when you're in this position of power... And you have the ability to encourage thousands of your followers. There's That's lots demented. Of, there's lots of issues in Texas. Yeah. There really is. Mm -hmm. So, fun fact. After Louis Welch lost that race, he didn't win again. T-shirts that said, Louis, you missed, were made. 
That's good. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So (laughs) there were homophobic jokes on the radio. It was just institutional homophobia that made it perfectly okay to say those things. It's just so gross Mm -hmm. to me. You know, I even remember like when you and I were growing up and an insult that kids would say to each other was the F word. Like like Mm -hmm. in in terms of, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And like... (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah. Man. Right. What the fuck? Yep. And these are grown adults saying yeah. this stuff on TV and on the radio. God. You know? And we've had this exact same thing paralleled with certain politicians recently. Yeah. But I'm not going to get into that right now. So despite HIV and AIDS taking such a devastating toll, there wasn't a ton of research going on to try and help it either. And Houston was especially lagging in solutions, like worse than other cities. So just like how you spoke in last week's episode about LGBTQ plus bars and clubs being raided by the police in New York, the same thing was happening in Houston and all over, really. Yeah. But in Houston, the police actually had this file called the F word file really Mm -hmm. and they would carry this file when the bars were raided and they would take photos of the patrons and add them to that file how fucking despicable Mm -hmm. like for what and the lgbtq plus community was becoming fed the fuck up with this like before i was barely alive in 1991 yeah But through my research, I learned that the early 90s really was, like, there was this storm brewing. Because before then, gay men basically just tried to suck it up as best as they could because nothing would ever change. And I've never, I'm I'm not a gay man, but from interviews and things that I've heard yeah, sure. that I listened to for this research, that was like, that's what they had to do, to try to suck it up. And like fly and this under was the your radar. Life. And right. And like fly under the radar mm-hmm. and just yeah. deal with things right. that they shouldn't have had to be put through. But in 1991, Houston, change was coming and Paul Broussard's horrific murder was the catalyst. Houston was growing in 1991, and a neighborhood called Montrose was the center of the gay community. In the 60s and 70s, Montrose was kind of like the hub for the counterculture movement. It had street musicians, alternative community centers, hippie communes, head shops, art studios, underground newspapers, protests against the Vietnam War. You get the idea. So somewhere I want to live. It sounds like a really cool place to be. Mm -hmm. Underground newspapers? Yeah, like um, queer newspapers and stuff and queer radio stations. Yeah, now I know it's been highly gentrified and it's like, you know, newly built houses and kind of taken over. But back then then it was where you could go. Yeah. If you, you know, like if you were different. Yeah. Or people thought you were different and you you didn't have community, you didn't have anywhere to belong. That's where you could go. Yeah, that's so cool. Mm Mm-hmm. There was even a section of the neighborhood that hosted underground counterculture listener-sponsored radio shows. And it was called like Radio Row, I think. And their transmitter was literally blown up by the KKK. No. Mm -hmm. Are you fucking kidding me? So, no, I'm not kidding. I know I said, yeah, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) In the 70s, Montrose was home to around 30 to 40 gay bars and clubs and several gay activism groups, including the Gay Liberation Front. Mm. In the 80s, Reverend Ralph Lasher opened the Montrose Clinic, which provided therapy and counseling for LGBTQ plus people. It's now called the Montrose Center, and it's really just an overall full body and mind health center for LGBTQ plus people in Montrose. 
While people felt that they could be themselves in Montrose, it wasn't just this bubble of safety. It did have its rough edges and and quite a bit of crime. So in the early 90s, teenagers and young people, probably people of all ages really, from the Houston suburbs would drive over to Montrose and they like to cruise around and harass gay people pretty much. So basically what you're telling me is they had nothing else better to do. Right, exactly. And they felt like that would be something that would be appropriate. That's that's the thing to do. Why mm-hmm. are people the worst? Yep, yep. And you know as a teen or whatever, like you'd hang out in the fucking parking lot. Yeah, sure. You know, or like just drive downtown. Yeah. Buzz the gut. That's yeah. what they and, fucking call it in and, Morris. And buzz the gut. <laughs> buzz yeah. The gut. But I would never Right, but they imagine you know, would like to like drink and drive and go out and just harass people yeah mm-hmm. fucking losers yeah and then like you know someone always gets stupid takes it too far someone's drunk or whatever things get out of hand pretty quickly so attacks and muggings were pretty common in montrose armed robberies things like that and a lot of the times those instances weren't even reported to the police because they knew that most of the time the police wouldn't step in right and help with an attack in the gay neighborhood so why report it Right, exactly. Why Why even mm-hmm. it's waste like, why their bother? time? And actually, it would probably end up backfiring on them anyway. Yeah. There's a lot of layered fears right. that go into that. And it was well known that Montrose had a high concentration of LGBTQ plus residents and bars and clubs. And so when the police were called, they might show up. They might not, as you'll see. But a lot of the time, even if the cops came, they didn't do a whole hell of a lot. That's just so fucking sad. And so things were pretty tense. Like I said, a storm was brewing. It was dangerous to walk the streets at night. You never really knew what could be lurking in the shadows. And the city government didn't seem to give a shit. There was the fear of AIDS. Being gay was effectively illegal because of sodomy laws. And it's almost like people needed somewhere they could be out. They could meet people. They could find community. And they could do that in Montrose, but it still came with this huge risk. Yeah, right. Perpetrators knew that LGBTQ plus people lived in Montrose, and they also knew that there was little to no consequences for committing a crime against those people. And the residents had to pretty much try and protect themselves. If you're anything like Tori and me, you like to smell good. You like your home to smell good. You like your hot bod to smell good. Good. That's where Crumble Co. comes in. With Crumble Co.'s line of two times stronger 600 plus hour wax melts, rinse-free hand washes, shower gels, and lotions, you're going to be all set. Whether you like your scents classic, quirky, sexy, or even a little witchy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Crumble Co. has something that you are sure to love. I've actually purchased from them before. I actually... Actually, actually. Actually? Actually. I actually just put in another order today. What did you get? Today, I got like seven or eight different melts, Ooh. wax melts. But before, in my in my first order, I got the Fruity Looper scent and the Sleepy Succulents scent. Yes. And they're fucking to die for. I love them. My entire home just fills up 
I can smell them from outside. Yeah, really? Yeah. I actually got the fuck depression once a day when I ordered. Crumble Co. is queer owned and it's your one-stop shop for handcrafted products that are good for you and good for your neighbor because Crumble Co. partners with dozens of nonprofits who do good work around the globe. Crumble Co. is a loud and proud company that you can feel good about supporting. It's more than just a candle shop. It is a forward-thinking community. Cruel and Unusual listeners can get 20% off their first purchase with promo code WELCOME20 at crumbleco.com. That's crumbleco.com, promo code WELCOME20. Love Love you. you. Bye. Bye. The 4th of July in 1991 fell on a Thursday, and in Houston, Texas, it was a hot one, as you can imagine. Mm The temperature was in the 90s, just hot as shit. And Paul Broussard, who was only 27, was out on the town in the Montrose neighborhood. Now, it was a holiday, the 4th of July, and it's really, it's a good excuse to go out. I mean, it doesn't get dark till late. There's fireworks. That's pretty much what we do in the U.S. for any holiday is just party. And Paul worked as a banker, and the holiday was on a Thursday, so I imagine he probably had a four-day weekend. But he wanted to go out and, and have fun and just let loose with his friends. As one does. Paul was a graduate from Texas A&M. He was an Eagle Scout, which is hard to do. He had a good job. It just seems like he had such a bright future. Yeah. So it was just after 2 a.m. after the bar Heaven had closed. Paul was walking across a parking lot in Montrose with his friends Carrie Anderson and Richard Delaney. This is when a group of 10 boys, nine of them teenagers from 15 to 17 years old, and one of them, a 22-year-old, crossed paths with Paul and his two friends. I'm not sure exactly what sparked the initial confrontation. I mean, fund- fundamentally, I know what sparked it. Yeah. But, like, action-wise, I know that there was an angry exchange of words. The boys pulled up in their cars. I am sh- i don't know how many cars they were in, but there were 10 of them. So I would imagine a few cars. They pulled up to Paul and his two friends and asked for directions. And then... It turned into this like angry confrontation of shouting. And this group of 10 boys got out of their vehicles that they were piled into and began chasing after Paul and his friends. The boys' names were Jaime Aguirre, Javier Aguirre, Derek Attard, John Bice, Chance Paul Dillon, Rafael Grable Gonzalez, Galand Randall, Leandro Ramirez, Brian Spake, and Jeffrey Valentine. These boys had just come from a high school house party in a suburb of the Woodlands, Texas, and they had all been drinking, and some, if not all of them, had used drugs at the party. I don't know which kind of drugs or how drunk they were. One of them would say later on that he was on LSD, and I don't know, maybe... Likely story. I mean... When you think of like what drug is going to make you do stuff and you don't know what you're doing and you don't remember, you would probably say LSD, right? Yeah. Like, that's why his attorney probably right, said exactly. to say it. Yeah. They'd all come down to Montrose because they wanted to go clubbing, even though they were all underage except for the one. I guess it was just something that they'd done before, or at least some of them had done before, but it didn't work for them that night because they were refused entrance at like two or three bars. Oh, wow. So they're chasing Paul and his friends on foot, and Paul's two friends manage to escape down a busier street while Paul heads down a dead-end road. No, Paul. It was Yeah. It wasn't long before the group of boys caught up to Paul and cornered and surrounded him. They began beating Paul with their fists, 
one boy struck Paul multiple times with a two-by-four piece of wood that had nails protruding out the end. And Paul fought back as hard as he could, but it, it was one against ten. Right. And John Bice, one of the boys, stabbed Paul in the chest with a buck knife. And once Paul passed out from exhaustion and, and fighting and being beaten and stabbed, right. two of the boys rifled through Paul's pockets and took a comb as a souvenir. Ew, what the yeah. actual hell? Mm-hmm. Then what they, is wrong with people? I know, I know. Then they left him there with blood pouring out of him onto the pavement. So he was alive. At this point, Paul was alive. He laid there for hours, bleeding. And probably terrified. Terrified. And that all happened in the very early morning. Remember, it was like around 2 a.m. when Paul and his friend had left the bar. They were walking in the parking lot. And when EMS finally got to him, he was still able to talk. Now, it's worth noting here, I'm not sure when the police or 911 was called. I don't know if someone came across Paul the night before and called. I don't know if someone found him when the sun came up. Um, I just don't know. But I do know that even the paramedics, EMS, were reluctant to go on calls in Montrose because they were afraid of being contaminated with AIDS. Really? Mm -hmm. You're in the wrong job. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you're supposed to be caring for people and saving people. That is literally your job. Fuck. So it's entirely possible that 911 was called long before EMS actually arrived on the scene. And if that's true, then the delay in treatment possibly resulted in Paul dying. But he was still alive when paramedics got there. They planned on taking him to Ben Taub Medical Center, which was a trauma hospital. But Paul actually requested himself that he be taken to St. Joseph's Medical Center. Oh, wow. Paul had suffered from abrasions, puncture wounds, a broken rib, bruised testicles, and two Ugh. stab wounds. How many? Two stab wounds in his chest. Honey. And EMS, for some reason, didn't think that his injuries were, were very severe. So his transport to the hospital was considered low priority. Really? And as a result of that. No. Yeah, no. I know. I know. No. It gets Fuck worse. you. As a result of his low priority transport, it took them 40 minutes to get Paul to the hospital instead of eight minutes. Like it normally would take them eight minutes. Is that not fucked up? I just feel like there's no fucking way that trained professionals would think that that's low priority. Right. And he was low priority because of who he was as a person. Exactly. And that's so fucking disgusting. Yeah. And I know we're making that that assumption that that's what they were thinking, but there was actually a quote that people would, would repeat in Montrose. And it went something along the lines of, if you get hurt in Montrose, get in your car and drive someplace else and then call 911. So that wow. it was a thing that was continually happening over right. and over. Right. People knew that. So I don't think it's just an assumption. No, I don't think so either. You know, if that isn't horrific enough, after they finally got Paul to the hospital, it took another hour for them to find a doctor who was willing to treat him. A doctor who was willing to treat a dying patient. And a doctor who could have saved his life, probably. Paul ended up dying at the hospital several hours later. I just find that to be disgustingly inhumane. Mm -hmm. Inhumane, yeah. You don't treat people like that when it is your job to help them. There's, There's literally no words. No. 
Now, back to the crime scene. It wasn't being treated as a homicide yet, because last the police knew Paul was still alive. Um, There was no police tape, nothing like that. It was being treated as an assault. They didn't know if this was a hate crime, if it was a robbery gone wrong, if it was just like a transient, you know, randomly out on the streets attacking people. They had no idea. But the gist that I got was they were thinking, oh, it's just another assault on another gay man. This happens all the time. We don't need to put a lot of effort into this. It's the running theme here. Right? I'm just shaking my head at you because I have mm-hmm. zero. It's infuriating. It really, 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 yeah. really is. Paul was dead. He had been murdered and it threw the community into a tailspin. With little to go off of, they had to assume that any one of them could be next. So they had to remain vigilant because they knew the police didn't care. They knew that an ambulance might not even come and that if something happened, they might not even be able to receive treatment at all. And so public outcry began. Rightfully so. So when the police learned that Paul actually did die from his injuries, they were saying, in probably different terminology, but they were saying that they wouldn't be able to find whoever killed him. There just wasn't any evidence that the perpetrator or perpetrators were basically just going to get away with it. Yeah, because you guys aren't doing mm-hmm. your motherfucking job. Right. They, didn't, they just didn't seem intent on finding the killer. So like... I don't know. You do not get an A for effort in this one. No. You get an F for fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) Neighborhood patrols started up in Montrose. Like, they started their own neighborhood patrols. They actually patrolled the streets themselves with radios to communicate with. They had to check in. They had to file reports. You know, kind of like what the police are supposed to do. Safe zones were organized around hot spots in the neighborhoods where the popular bars and clubs were. People would be escorted to their cars when they left at night, but they really wanted and needed to try and get to the root of the issues they were facing. They did that by trying to engage City Hall in the Houston Police Department. And how did that work? Well, we'll see. Community members would tell them if what happened to Paul Broussard had happened in any other community, they'd be like hitting the ground running. Like, why aren't you doing your jobs? This is what they were asking of them to their faces. Right. A Houston gay rights advocate and activist named Ray Hill and his colleagues sprung into action. Ray Hill insisted that the murder of Paul Broussard was a hate crime, and he told this to the police, he told this to the media, to TV stations and newspapers. He implored people to listen, and they did. Because what Ray Hill and Queer Nation and ACT UP and all of the other activists were doing was working. The murder of Paul Broussard was making headlines, and not just by queer media outlets, it was gaining national attention. The people wanted change. They didn't want Paul's murder to be just another murder. They knew that they had to use this opportunity to push for justice and tolerance and rights because something good had to come out of it. They couldn't continue to let gay people be murdered in Houston with no consequences. You know, like a basic level of human decency. (laughs) Soon after, the corner where Mary's, which is a famous landmark gay bar where AIDS victims' ashes were spread and where activists had fought the fight for decades, was the scene of a protest. Queer Nation, the group who organized the protest, thought maybe like a few hundred people would come, but over 2,000 LGBTQ plus and straight Houstonians showed up. 
awesome. People of all walks of life, a true representation of the diverse people who were Houston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, they poured into the streets. They were angry. The protest was peaceful, but they were angry. National news outlets came to broadcast the protest live, and that was huge for them. They were finally able to let their voices be heard. They weren't going to let Paul's murder just fade away. And all of this put an enormous pressure on the Houston Police Department to Good. find who killed Paul and, and change the way that they do things, you know? And actually investigate his death. Yeah. And not just be like, oh, no, we're not going to find. Like, mm-hmm. um, okay, well, you don't get to say that because that's your job. You don't get to give up before you even start. Two weeks after Paul's murder, a student at the University of Houston walked up to Professor Carl Reinhardt, who was openly gay himself, and she told him that she knew one of the boys who killed Paul. This is what kicked off the entire, all of them being caught. So the police didn't, I mean, like, yeah, after that happened, the police did their job, but if she never came forward. My second assumption of the night is that it would still be unsolved paul's death would still be unsolved right. because the police had no intention on investigating his murder right i agree so the police were informed after the student told her professor the police were informed and it wasn't long before all 10 boys were taken into custody and they signed written confessions all of them they became known as the woodland 10 Ray Hill lobbied, so Ray Hill was the activist, he lobbied the prosecutor and district attorney for meaningful sentences, meaning they better get some fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. And all 10 of them accepted plea bargains. They never went to trial. Now, through their confessions and interviews and whatnot, it was determined that five of the boys were less culpable than the others, meaning that they never actually touched Paul. I mean, I don't know how you prove that, but I'm, I guess if you've got 10 people and all of their stories are the same, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe less culpable physically, but I mean, they were still there. They were still part of that group. Yeah. They still witnessed a, a murder. And didn't come forward. And didn't, yeah, and did yeah. not come forward with the information that mm-hmm. was needed. Right, right. So are they really less culpable? I know. Not to me. Those five were Derek, Raphael, Galen, Jeffrey, and Brian. So those five received just probation. And actually, um, Paul's mother, Nancy Rodriguez, was working with um, whoever, would it be the prosecutor or district attorney, working with them to determine their sentences. So she had some say in it, which was not common back then. It's common now. Yeah. Um, So they just got probation, those five. And they were also to pay for hospital bills and funeral expenses for Paul. However, Derek and Galen both violated the terms of their probations and they were sent to prison. Ha ha, motherfuckers, good. I'm glad that that they were sent to prison Mm -hmm. and that that was actually followed through with. Yeah. Out of the other five boys, the ones who actively participated in Paul's murder, Javier, Jaime, and Leandro received 15 years plus one day in prison. Chance Paul Dillon received a 20-year sentence for attempted murder and aggravated attempted murder. And John Bice, the one who actually stabbed Paul, was sentenced to 45 years in prison. The sentences of these five, the active participants, were widely criticized by a lot of people, including Queer Nation and Paul's mom, Nancy, for being too light. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So starting in the year 2000, the boys involved in Paul's murder who were incarcerated began to be paroled. 
John Bice, um, Stabby Pants, he was denied parole like five times and then granted parole in 2015 at 41 years old. So he's out. He's out now, yeah. He's out and just walking about and yeah. living his life. He was released into his father's custody under strict supervision, so I know he had to wear like an ankle monitor. He couldn't contact any of the other boys that were involved. None of them could be in contact. Um, and this is a quote from John Bice from an interview that he had with Chris Bull in 2001. So 2001, that's before he got out, yeah. right? Yeah, this was a prison interview that he did. Got it, okay. He said, quote, there was a thrill-seeking aspect to it. It was something we could do together and get away with it. It was really more about our relationships and our sense of boredom than about the victim. That's That makes it not mm-hmm. any better. Mm-hmm. It could really have been anybody. It just happened to be Paul. I can say for sure that none of the guys were killers. We never once talked about getting anyone. In my wildest dreams, I could never imagine that I'd come home with blood on my hands that night. It was just something that sort of happened. A lot of things went wrong all at once, end quote. But you're wrong because you are killers. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, but everything that he said is a crack of shit. I think that he was, because that was in 2001. I know he was up for parole in 2003. So <clears throat> none of that makes anything any better. Being like, oh, we didn't set out to murder someone, but you did. So regardless, if it weren't for the outcry and the activism and the demand for justice, I don't think this case would have been solved. Hell and no. you could argue that one of the boys might have eventually, like, confessed or whatever, you know, in the future. But that's a far cry from essentially forcing the police and the powers that be to act. Right. Exactly. Like, do something. And other things happened, too, after the protests and the arrests. Houston area clergy members began speaking out against LGBTQ plus hate crimes, which is huge. The Houston Police Department constructed a sting operation called Vice Versa to catch homophobic perpetrators. And I thought this was very interesting. Listen to this shit. So several straight cops actually went undercover as gay men. Really? And they experienced the harassment and the physical violence themselves. Wow. And not only did that help them catch homophobe aggressors, it forced them to finally see what gay men had to endure and realize that the fucking system that is supposed to be there for protection and justice should work the same for everyone. I think that that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I know that we shit on them a lot. I'll shit on the police when they're not doing their job. Right. Yeah, because, all day long. Exactly, because they, they weren't. But this is a huge deal. And it's sad that that's what it took for them to realize, oh, this is actually happening. Right. This is a quote from HoustoniaMag.com, and it's about other things that happened because of Paul Broussard's murder, other positive things. Gotcha. Okay. Quote, over the next few years, HPD took further steps to bridge the gap between its officers and the city's LGBTQ plus citizens, updating its definition of hate crimes to include those motivated by sexual orientation, helping to train Montrose's newly established citizen patrol. So I'm going to break the quote here, but that citizen patrol that I talked about earlier, they actually got help from the police on how to do it better. Oh, okay. So they were actually getting the support that they needed. Right. Okay. Got it. And they hired the force's first openly gay officer. The Houston City Council issued a resolution calling on the state legislature to pass a hate crimes bill. 
and though it took a decade for one to be signed into state law, the 2001 James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act, which includes the words sexual preference in its list of recognized prejudices, Broussard's senseless death was a catalyst for its existence, as well as for the broader changes that have become a hallmark of the city's character, end quote. The murder of Paul Broussard also brought out allies that the Houston LGBTQ community didn't know that they had, and it showed what the power of unity can do. And it's awful, like I said, it's awful that it took someone losing a life, a mother losing her son for the powers that be to see that something had to change, but he didn't die in vain. Right, right. His death ignited change and set precedents for the future of the community and, and equality. Houston went on to elect a lesbian mayor, Anise Parker. Anise Parker would later appoint Phyllis Fry as the first out transgender judge in the nation. Wow. The same year, 2015, that Texas legalized same-sex marriage. Wow. That's there, huge. Yeah. There are still so many battles to be fought, but Paul Broussard set off a wave of activism that's still present to this day. And what a legacy for him. A hundred million percent. And his family. Yeah. I feel like, once again, I couldn't find a lot about Paul as a person. I dug and dug and dug and dug. I just couldn't find much. And no one can change what happened to him. But I feel like he would be so proud. Agreed. I hope he's proud. Agreed. So that is the murder and the legacy of Paul Broussard. And if you guys want to know more, if you want to hear from people who lived in Montrose, if you want to hear from Anise Parker, if you want to know more about what it was like in that time, you should check out, it's a documentary, it's free on YouTube. It's called A Murder in Montrose, The Paul Broussard Legacy. Really good. I feel like I have to watch it now. Mm-hmm. There's so much good information and opinions and viewpoints. And from people that were there. Yeah, from people who lived it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, so yeah, another devastating murder. But it's one that happened and it affected so much change that might have otherwise taken decades to to come about. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it really pushed things forward. For the community the legacy that he left propelled them forward, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's another important one to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Because I knew that last name, but I had no idea about anything you talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, Tori. What are you reading, watching, and listening to? <sighs> okay, so I have my sticky. You got to stick a note. I forgot to say on the last episode that I watched The Woman in the Window. Oh, how was that? On Netflix. It was good. So when I was really sick, like on one of the really bad nights of my sinus or head thing or whatever, Mm -hmm. I couldn't lay down because I could not breathe. Right. So finally at like 2 a.m. I got up and I went out in the living room and I just sat there miserable. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm just going to fucking put on the TV. And I saw The Woman in the Window. And I'm like, I... That's based off the book, right? Yeah. I'm like, I couldn't really get into the book, but I was kind of just not in a very good is space. Is that the one that, is it like AJ Finn? Something like that. I think yeah. there was some controversy around that. Yes. Uh-huh. And I can't remember what it is, but there is. So I couldn't really get into the book because of that, but I wanted to watch it anyway. Yeah. So I watched it and I really liked it. 
It was good. I forgot that it was out. I had it on my list to watch, too, and I forgot all about it. Yeah. I mean, it made me not think about being feeling like shit for a little bit. That's all that matters, From right? 2 to 4 a.m. <laughs> and then, obviously, you and I watched Mayor of Easttown. Yes. The fuck? So fucking good, right? I just wish that we could give all the spoilers so we could talk about our love. You know what was a surprise to me? Evan Peters even being on the show. I didn't even know he was on it. Yeah. And he pops up on my screen and I'm like, whoo, daddy. (laughs) There (laughs) you are. Daddy, there you are. I love him. I love him and I love his character. Mm -hmm. Also, I loved Kate Winslet's character too. She was so good. She was, she's just incredible. You know, there was a point where I... I forgot that I was watching Kate Winslet act. Like, yeah. I was watching Mare. She was Mare. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yes. So fucking good. And that is how you know, like, the mark of an incredible actor. Mm-hmm. Because once there's someone, like, in like a household name, like Kate yeah. Winslet, like Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Just, I don't you think, know. not once during that show, no. however many episodes, did it feel like I was watching a superstar. Right. You know? Right. Because once someone is a superstar, that's the only way you see them. Right. But not with this. Mm-mm. She literally transformed into Mare. Yeah, so good. You guys have to. It's a seven-episode series. Mm-hmm. She's a small-town detective investigating missing girls and murdered girls. And, I mean, it's it's the twist is there's unbelievable. Multiple, there's multiple twists. So many twists. Multiple storylines. And there's Evan Peters. Not to be dramatic, but I would simply hand him my soul if yes. he asked me for it. Yeah. And he probably would. That's Mayor of Easttown. Now, as far... Oh, I'll, I'll talk about books real quick. I finally finished the audiobook that I was listening to, and that is Mother May I by Jocelyn Jackson. How many stars out of five? Four. Okay, good. I really like it. Good. It's a good thriller. And podcast. I've listened to a couple of Killer Queens mm-hmm. episodes. I also listened to one Sinisterhood and I listened to the first episode of the second season of Unraveled with Billy and Alexis. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Really good. But yeah, that's I'm I feel like I had a lot. You did. Ooh. I'm impressed. I never watched TV. And you told me that you were that you had finished um Mayor of Easttown. I told you how proud I was. <laughs> I know. Because you, you need that. Proud. You need to do stuff like that. Yes. And also, I was up until like 11. Yeah. Watching the last two episodes. Crazy, crazy. Just couldn't stop myself. Yeah. Um, but what about you? What are you reading, watching, and listening to? So I watched that, obviously. Cruel Summer finished. Which <laughs> you need to sit and just binge them. The last episode, oh my god. Yeah, I have to, fi- I, I want to watch that too. The last scene of the very last episode of this season. It was like, pew. Handmaid's Tale finale. That was also extremely fucked up, but very satisfying. Podcasts. On the way here, I was listening to the brand episode of Swindled about Procter and Gamble and the fucked up tampons they were selling in like the 70s and 80s that gave everybody TSS, toxic shock syndrome. Fuck, and, and that's people. why they have to put that goddamn thing yeah. on there. Yeah. And but, they, I mean, Procter and Gamble has done a lot of other shady shit too, but yeah. it's mostly about that tampon, the um, Rely tampon or whatever it was called. Wow. Yeah. I love, I just love Swindled. 
Yeah, you know, that's one I've never gotten into. Mm -hmm. And I listened to the two-parter, Killer Queens, about Kurt Cobain. And I think it was Angela who had a QOTDW a long time ago on if we thought that he had committed suicide or if he was murdered. Someone did, yeah. And I, I I think I said that I believe that he committed suicide, but after... I had never really looked into it. No. But yeah. after listening to that, I don't think he committed suicide. Really? At all. No, you have to listen to that. Yeah, no, I feel like I have to. I've never really been that into Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up with my dad blaring yeah. Nirvana in the car. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I don't like Nirvana, but mm-hmm. I've never just never really been super into it. So I never really looked into it. Right. Yeah. That's really it. I'm reading Ranker articles still. I love them. Yeah, I really need you to continue sending me them. Did you read them? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I want to read them before I go to sleep, too. All right, guys. You can find us on Instagram at Cruel and Unusual the Pod. You can send us an email at Cruel and Unusual the Pod at gmail.com. I tweet. Tweet, tweet. At Cruel and Unusual Pod. Also, I made a TikTok for us. Yeah, there's a TikTok. Ooh. That is like... How are we even going to tell them that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, you guys, this one is a hard one. Let me get it real quick. Let me get it real quick with my Minnesota accent. Real quick. She's going to pull that up. She's going to pull it up in a gif. This one had to be a little bit weird because there were other things that were taken. But our TikTok is at cruel underscore and underscore unusual underscore the pod. <laughs> You'll see us. Yeah, we'll link it. We'll put it like in our link trees and, and other places too. Yeah, go follow us. Show us some love. Do all the comments. And we're going to try and post some more this week. You can go to cruelinkmedia.com for merch.com. Show notes, source material, Patreon wall, Patreon link. Join us on Patreon if you would like. Ooh. We just put a Bad Daddy's Father's Day episode up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I forced Tori to name it Bad Daddy's. Yeah, because I named it what? Daddy Dearest, I think. Daddy Dearest Which is also or good. something, yeah. But also a solid title. Yeah. But, but yeah. I told her it had to be Bad Daddy's. Uh-huh. There's so, no other option. So, so if your tier that you joined includes our bonus episodes, our hashtag bonersodes. Bonersodes. Then that is up now. I put it up on mm-hmm. Father's Day. And join our Facebook group, Cruel and Unusual, colon, the group on Facebook. Also... If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, can you subscribe, give us a rating, and give us a little review, please? Please. please. It really does help us get in front of more listeners. Yeah. I think that's the fucking, I think that that's we're it. done. That's our spiel, okay? That's, we're that's fucking it. done. We have to go. Go. Nice knowing you. Pack your fucking bags. We we're going go. on a trip. We have to go. And we're still going. We're still talking. (laughs) Okay, you guys. All right. (laughs) Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.